Uh, we're starting a new sermon series today, and uh, here's a nice little story uh, to begin us uh, off. Uh, in 2016, uh, it was the, I was at a meeting, and uh, so I'm working here, all right? That's just so you know, this is the church context we're in, and these are the church people that were around. I'm, 2016, it's the playoffs leading up to the World Series, and some of you remember who was in the playoffs and who was headed towards the series that year. The Dodgers were playing the Cubs that night as the meeting was ending and it was on in the background. And I made a comment, some of you are going to tune me out after this, but hold on to me, okay? I made a comment that, that to somebody at the homeowner that, who was a diehard Cubs fan. I said, you know, I really have always been more of a Dodgers fan and I lean them, towards them in this game. I was told... Pastor Evan, get out, <laughs> is what I was told. You're going to throw the game. Get out. Now, I'm happy the Cubs won. I like the Cubs, but I've always tended towards the Dodgers when it came down to that contest. Now, the Cubs won, as we know. Now you can cheer and say all you want to say. But... And I was happy about that. That was fine. And what happens when the Cubs win, of course, is if you're watching, the first of all, shock is what happened. Everybody said, wait, they actually did it. And second of all, then there's this cheering and singing. Everybody starts singing together. Um, but what's uh, just a matter of a, a couple weeks later, I happened to be in Chicago for a meeting at our denominational headquarters, which is out near O'Hare Airport. And I can see out of the conference room window as there are people, just stream after stream of people, just in full Cubs gear because it was the day of the parade. It was that, I mean, just as many people, and I was out by O'Hare. I wasn't even downtown at all, going to the train station. And then, of course, at the end of the day, they're all coming back. But they just, they just kept going, just more and more people. And you had uh, the, the Chicago news sources all said it was about 5 million people gathered. Now, I read a news article this week that said, if you calculate the amount of space that a person takes compared to what was there, it couldn't have been more than 1 to 2 million reasonably. But it was a big crowd, all that to say. Amazing, right? That you gather all of these people together, and some news sources were saying it was the seventh largest gathering of people in human history. I don't know if that's verifiable uh, to make that claim, but it was a big gathering, a multitude of people, wasn't it? It's an amazing thing that all of these people who probably on any other day probably couldn't agree on that many things, they can agree on a lot, but they can always find reasons to divide and be divided on things, could gather together because of one unifying event. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Now this morning, as we're gathered together here, brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are seeking Jesus or interested, if you love Jesus and his church, the final scenes of human history are going to be like that, but a whole lot better. The multitude is going to be a whole lot bigger and better. And isn't that a good thing this morning? That's our hope. We already heard testimony to Revelation 7-9, and that's where I'm going to begin today, and we'll get into Ephesians in just a little bit. But Revelation 7-9, John is getting this vision of what will be. And he's, he sees the 144,000, the tribes of Israel basically is what he sees. God's promise now has been fulfilled, and it's the remnant of that promise that he's seeing. But then he kind of turns, and it says in chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tr nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is our hope. Isn't that good news this morning? This is our hope. 
Our hope is not the Cubs winning the series, good as that was. Our hope is not the Huskers having a great season. Our hope is not financial security. Our hope is not our job or getting out of our job. Our hope is not happiness. It's not new things. It's not stuff. It's not family. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. Those things are all good. Our hope is our redemption from sin. Our hope is the redemption of this world from the grip of sin. Our hope is the new heaven and the new earth, the resurrected body, full and complete communion with our Creator. That's our hope. That's what the multitude is singing about because they're in His presence and they know it. The hope is realized. That's good news this morning. Let's get excited about that this morning. And the point I want to make today, and, and we're going to get into Revelation, or Revelation, we already are. We're going to get into Ephesians, and we're only going to stick there for three weeks. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back at the beginning of 2018 to finish out Ephesians. A few reasons for that. But the point I want to get to today, and, and the reality is that God's glory is revealed when his people are gathered in worship. So right now, when we sing when we speak with one another, when we share from His Word, when we hug, when we shake hands, when we show hospitality to one another and to those who come in the door, our attitudes, when we serve and when we go out and serve, when we share, those things all should reflect the glory of God. The reality of this hope living right now among us. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're actually living in to being the multitude as we speak. Now, I'm going to ask a couple questions that kind of guide us from this point on. And I've already answered the first one to a degree, but we're going to keep it in there. If, if, if the multitude is our hope, the first question is, do we have to wait until the end to enjoy that hope? It's, it's a broader question than simply yes or no in, in one sense. And secondly, if the multitude is our hope, how do we get from here to there? which is a really key and important question. And in a lot of ways, that's really what we're zeroing in on over the next three weeks. How do we get from here to there to become the multitude even now, to represent that, to look like God's glory, so that one day we fully represent God's glory? And we live in our culture right now. We live in diverse times. That's a good thing. We live in very diverse times in many ways. We also live in divided times, and that's not a new thing. Let's just point that out. That's been going on for a while. We've had a couple of flare-ups and, and things that have happened recently that for some who maybe weren't paying attention, all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, this is still going on. For those who live it, it's been going on. We live in times that, that are both diverse, which is good, and divided, which is not so good. And, and I was reflecting on this this week uh, because what we're talking about is, is issues of both uh, racial division, cultural division, ethnic division that, that exists. And I want to look at it specifically within the context of the church. But let's look more broadly in our culture. If we look around in Lincoln, the place where we live, it is more diverse than we realize, I think. Um, so we have figures here from the Lincoln Public Schools. Uh, I picked these up this week. They're on their website, available for anybody. And it's the ethnic distribution of Lincoln Public Schools K through 12. Uh, and this is pretty representative of, of the general makeup of Lincoln. When I graduated from high school here in Lincoln, uh, my graduating class was probably about 97% white. Well, now it's about two-thirds white in the population of the, the school. You have the next highest uh, representation is Hispanic uh, and then African-American and two or more races are there. 
And this is just representative. We live with this in our workplace. We live with this as we go out and about in the city. It's more diverse than sometimes I think we realize the community we're in. Sure, it's got a long way to go. I've lived a, a number of different places that have been more diverse, less diverse. And I come back to Lincoln and sometimes we're like, people think, say, well, we're not very diverse. Well, more than we think we are, more than we realize. It, it's here among us. We're living in it. And solutions abound with not the diversity piece, but with how to make sure that we live in the diversity without being divided. You can find all kinds of different solutions that people are proposing right now. Uh, you know, whether it's increased use of inclusive language or PC uh, that gets thrown around a lot, uh, discussions about intersectionality, protests, sit-ins, call-ins, write-ins, education, whatever you have, all kinds of different things, which all have some good contributions to make. They're not necessarily bad things, all of those. There's something that can, they can add, but let's never be fooled. They're not the total solution to the problem. As followers of Jesus, then, do we have something important to contribute in this conversation? As his church, do we have something important to contribute in this conversation? Yes. I'm going to, well, thank you. It was rhetorical, but I, I like the uh, uh, participation. We do. I'm not going to stand before you and say I've solved all the issues. I haven't. But I can point to where the solution lies. I can point us in the right direction as his church, right? We need education about cultural and racial issues and awareness. I'm going to advocate for that over the next few weeks. I think that's important. That's part of the whole title of the whole sermon series. But if we just look at those solutions like that, they miss a couple key points. Ephesians points us to, and that only God can deliver on, and is trying to deliver on through his church. That is, most worldviews underestimate the power of human sin. We have to recognize the fullness of human sin and what sin does in breaking relationships. It just profoundly messes them up, and sometimes we underestimate how profound that problem is. And importantly then, to be plucked out of the power of sin, to be redeemed from that, we get the power of the Holy Spirit. We can educate ourselves to we're blue in the face, but if we don't have that, we're always going to be dealing with the sin problem. We're never going to get ourselves out of this. We have something very important to contribute to this issue. No real change can occur without the Holy Spirit at work. Without God working in the world that he created. No real lasting change is going to take place. I need to be changed. You need to be changed. The Spirit comes in and forms us into a new people, is what happens when we turn to God through Christ. But the question becomes, what does the world see when they look into the church? If, if we have that, if, if we have a, a robust understanding of sin and its power and the cure... And if we have the power of the Holy Spirit, when the world looks in, do they see a people that are doing something to address the issue? Do they see a people who are living as the multitude now? Because people do ask. People do wonder. It sometimes seems like culture is checked out in the church, but they haven't. They're wildly fascinated still. And when they look in, what do they see? And I'm probably going to frustrate you over the next couple weeks, and I'm probably going to frustrate you even today. I can almost guarantee it as we talk about this. Not because I want to. But because I'm not going to give you a solution and say, here's steps one, two, and three. And even today, I'm going to, I'm going to frustrate you because I'm going to tell you what the, the long and short of this is at the end. I'm going to encourage you to pray. Some of you say, yeah, but I want to do something, right? Prayer is doing something. 
Prayer is doing the most important thing first and foremost. Let's just make sure we understand that. Because by praying, and by praying as Paul is instructing us to pray, we are committing to the solution. We are committing ourselves to the one who can solve and being under the Lord's guidance in all of this and the power of the Spirit as we go forward to be formed into the multitude. So I'm going to frustrate you today, but I'm going to encourage you to pray and I'm going to call you to commit. If you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask if you want to commit to Jesus Christ. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've always kind of said, I don't really care for the church. I know you're here, but but you're kind of like, I'm I'm kind of half in, half out when it comes to his people. No, I'm going to ask you to commit to his people, because that's part of the solution. When we sign on with Jesus Christ, we're signing on with his people, too. There are people, too. We, We don't get to say no to one half of that equation. And I'm going to ask you to commit to the fullness of Jesus' church. That is, to be His hope. To be His glory revealed as we walk out of this place. Are you with me today? Okay, let's crack open Ephesians here. We're going to look at Ephesians 1. We've only got three verses we're going to look at. And I think this is a key text to understanding some of the things that certainly divide us, but what brings us together. And we're looking specifically as His people to be the multitude. And when you look at Ephesians, most likely, yes, it's written by Paul. Most likely, it's not written to the church in Ephesus. It kind of got that title along the way. And if you want to talk about that's a world called textual criticism, we can talk about it after the service. If you really want to ask about it, it's interesting, but I'm not going to bore you with that right now. And the reason we look at Ephesians and say this couldn't have been just written to the Ephesians by Paul is because it's kind of, it, he doesn't seem to know the people directly, whereas he knew the people in Ephesus. So this seems to be a general church letter. And so we can easily take it without thinking real hard about it as a general church letter to us very easily too. But clearly at play in this are different people groups that Paul is addressing. Jew and Gentile. Gentile specifically with a Greek thinking worldview. And so what you have are people with very different habits and customs, and worldviews, philosophies, different upbringings, uh, different vocabulary, even though they're speaking the same language, but they're using it different ways for different things, and they're asking different questions of the same text. You have two different people sitting together, and and the profound uh, difficulty of Jews sitting down to eat with a Gentile, a Greekish Gentile, was a big deal in that day. This, this was going to take monumental feats to make this happen. To have the, a Gentile understanding of what is essential gospel and what is cultural veneer on their end of things was, was difficult too. And you see that play out in Acts 15. To have uh, uh, the Jewish mindset come to grips with how truly expansive God's good news is that it even brings in these crazy pagans into this place. This is all playing out in the church context that Paul's writing to in in really a lot of early churches at this time. And the hope of Revelation 7, the multitude, is actually addressed right here. It's reflected in these two groups as they come together and figure it out. And Paul starts out in a genius way. If you think, I said, I'm I'm probably going to frustrate you because I'm going to call you to prayer as your application today. How does Paul start the letter? Prayer. Pretty much chapter 1 is a prayer. Pretty much most of the letter is a prayer from Paul. It's genius. On Paul's part. Paul writes in the first chapter, he says, Church, before you were even aware of it, God called you. God had planned for your best and chose you as his own, his child. 
with full blessings and benefits and inheritance. Full rights as his own. He says, but when you didn't live up to that church, when you were straying away, he made a way for your redemption to be brought back in. Prodigals returning to the Father. That's what God has done for you, church. He says, now that you are his, and you're not just individuals, you're his people. That's what he's done. He didn't just save you, he saved you, all of you. To bring you in as his own, to form you by the Spirit, to represent his plans to the world. What Paul says is, hey church, you're the hope of the world. Do you believe it this morning? You're the hope of the world. Sitting right here, right now, we're part of that hope of the world. Church, God's hope is you. Isn't that a remarkable thing? A bunch of imperfect people coming in here together asking for redemption and seeking God's goodness to us. We're the hope of the world. God's plan A. God's hope must be visible and it should be seen as his people gather together. When you gather, you reveal this hope. And so Paul tells us at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says, And God placed all things under his, that's Jesus, under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When it says Christ is the head, in this instance, it's very specifically the one who, who we take our marching orders from. He's the Lord. He's the sovereign one over everything. We do what he calls us to do. It's for the benefit of the church. It's not just for his own benefit. As you read 15 through 23, you see that Jesus is doing this for us so that we would be gathered together as his people to reveal this hope. To the world, And you see that Paul is talking about churches, the church that's collectively uh, uh, put together because of their allegiance to Christ, both here, uh, both in Ephesus, back in the ancient world, sitting across town, if they proclaim the gospel, uh, they are part of all of this call and under the lordship of Christ and the headship of Christ is the church. So we get back to our first question, do we have to wait until the end? To enjoy the hope. We've already kind of answered it. I, I really like the way that uh, Bill Hybels uh, of Willow Creek illustrates this same kind of question. Um, he says this, Have you ever wondered why, when you turn over your life to God, you don't just get express freighted right to heaven? Or to put it a little more crassly, if you're so heaven-bound, then why are you still sucking air down here? There's a very Bill Hybels way to say it. So, can we just enjoy our hope in the end? In one sense, uh, we have to wait until the end, right? Hope is hope for a reason. We can answer it that way. In our, our family went uh, on a Make-A-Wish trip in May to Disney World, and we got to stay at this really amazing place. And Stephanie, my wife, did all the planning really ahead of time uh, to look at, you know, they were watching videos as a family and, and writing down where we could go and all these kinds of things uh, to make sure we knew how to maximize the time when we were there. Well, that's an experience in itself, but that can never replace the experience of being there, right? You can watch all the videos you want of something, an experience like that, but to actually go and experience it is a completely different thing. So that's, hope is hope for a reason, yet at the same time, we can have a foretaste. Just like seeing the videos, just like I'm planning, charting the plans, you can get an idea ahead of time of what's going to happen. And so we can and should reveal God and God's glory as we gather together even today. We are the hope living out right now as we meet today. 
The hope is here, even in its imperfection, even as we're being made whole, healthy, holy. We can, we can taste the hope. We can reveal the glory that is to come by gathering. This Jew-Gentile division that goes on in the book of Ephesians is pretty big. Um, I went to, uh, did my undergraduate degree at North Park University in Chicago, on the north side of Chicago. Um, and around the corner from North Park is a Hasidic Jewish community center. And there's a, a large, well, for that area, a large Hasidic Jewish uh, community that's there. And so when you walk down the street towards the Jewel, to put in Illinoisian, um, you would see Hasidic Jews walking by. They're very distinctive because they're wearing wide-brimmed hats. Typically, it's Eastern European style that came over as they emigrated. Uh, wearing long coats, usually men uh, is who you see out, and tassels you see. And I was doing a little research again to remind myself of that community, and, and most people's impression that I read, they come across, Hasidic Jewish community comes across as very rude. Because if you make eye contact, they typically don't. Uh, I'm kind of friendly in my Midwestern way, so I say hi to everybody. And you don't often get a high back or even eye contact in those cases, and it comes across as rude. There are cultural, there are religious reasons why that's the case. But then can you imagine if I'm going to go step in and we're going to sit down at the same table together to eat? There's going to be some difficulties in, in some cultural uh, awareness that's going to need to take place. The same thing is going on in the book of Ephesians with Jew and Gentile sitting down at the table. The, the uh, Jews, even though they had recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, they still have centuries worth of law that has been their practice and dietary practice, particularly what we call kosher law, right? That they would only eat certain things in only certain ways. And yet you have now these Greek Gentile people coming in who now don't believe in the idols around, but they got meat that was sacrificed to an idol that afternoon. And they said, hey, we'll bring this to church tonight to eat. And so somebody sitting there who's Jewish says, I can't even be in the presence of that, let alone eat it. And the, the, the Greek person is saying, what's the big deal, right? I, we don't believe in those idols anyways. All of a sudden you have these major issues that come up of how do we even eat together? Which they did regularly. You have questions that come up of uh, the use of Messiah, for instance. That was clearly part of the Jewish context to use Messiah, but somebody coming in who doesn't have any context for the Old Testament and speaks only Greek and comes in, I don't know what the Messiah is. I don't know the significance of the Messiah. You can even teach me the significance of the Messiah, but that's how we get the word Lord that starts to sneak in because they're translating a word that's used for gods and rulers and sneaking it in so they can convey the idea of Messiah. They have to change their language to even function together. It's, it's incredibly difficult. What they needed is what we're talking about, this idea of cultural intelligence, which has been used in the business community for years. There are good Christian books on it as well, and we're talking about it within a Christian context. That is, and this comes from the Internet, from just a business site that defines it as well as anybody. It says cultural intelligence is the capability to relate and work effectively in culturally diverse situations. A culturally intelligent individual is not only aware but can also effectively work and relate with people and projects across different cultural contexts. And furthermore, they understand the motivation of why somebody who's different might do what they do. So now this gets used in the business world all the time, but even within our, our understanding within the Christian world, there are an awful lot of people who worship Jesus Christ and know him as Lord and Savior, but who come at it with different backgrounds, 
different worldviews, different understandings. The unifying factor is being at the foot of the cross. But we do need some cultural awareness to understand how this plays out in different understandings, in different ways, in different places among God's people. I was a part of organizing an event a couple years ago, uh, more than a couple now, um, at the last church I served called Invitation to Racial Righteousness. Uh, the Covenant does it. It's a wonderful event. It's a very challenging event. Um, it can be very challenging, in fact. Where they tend to take, they take two different congregations that don't look the same, and they put them together and have them sit at the same table. It's a, it's a very enriching experience. So we had uh, four congregations in our case, which made it kind of difficult. But generally speaking, the two predominant congregations were one that was almost all white and one that was almost all African-American. We sat down for a weekend, and we went through a, a number of really interesting sort of what you'd call cultural intelligence moments, understanding how the same gospel can be seen by different people. And I spent the weekend with an African-American man who was twice my age, who had grown up in the Carolinas, uh, uh, had, had about six or seven siblings, I can't remember the exact number, and grew up with a father that was a sharecropper in the Jim Crow South. That's a little different than my upbringing, you might guess. It was a great experience. It was a great experience to talk and see the same gospel through different eyes. As his people still, but how we see it in different ways and come at it in different ways. The gospel doesn't change. That's not the the issue here. Because Paul even addresses this in verse 17 of chapter 1. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. What did my friend and I have in common, even with different backgrounds and worldviews? We both sought to live and breathe the heart of God. And we could sit at the same table and enjoy the presence of one another and get to know one another and see how that plays out in our different worldviews. The fullness of Christ is the church, Paul tells us. That's what he's addressing at the end of this chapter. The fullness of Christ is is the church. The church is the hope of the world. And so if we're going to follow what's being said here, Paul prays. Verse 17 I found to be a useful and appropriate way to move forward. If you're looking at how do we move forward here? How do we even begin this process of being God's multitude? Or how do we continue this process? I say do exactly what Paul says. Pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's what he calls us to do. That is the spirit of wisdom, which has a lot to do with our relationships with one another. How are we going to navigate being the people of God together? What kind of skill are we going to use in doing that? If I follow Christ, if I'm his church in the world, I represent the multitude. So do you. If we're his people, we represent the multitude. And God's glory, yes, it's revealed as we gather together and worship. But guess what? If you're the church... It's revealed when we walk out of this place too. It's revealed when you go to the coffee station on Monday. It's revealed on Tuesday when you're in the lunchroom, on Wednesday when you're in the conference call, and on Thursday when you're taking your 15-minute break surfing the web. The glory of God is revealed through you, church. And so if we're going to pray for the spirit of wisdom, it's going to sound something like, Lord, how am I your hope to the marketing department? Because they don't like me this week. How am I your hope to the marketing department? Lord, how am I your hope to my neighbor in the cubicle next door? Lord, how am I your hope to that one kid in class that really I don't like? How am I your hope? 
If we're going to pray for the spirit of revelation as we go out, we have to recognize that God is revealed to us, yes, in the pages of Scripture, but we, we uh, respond in prayer. That's what we're doing. God, I hear you. I hear you. Now what? That's what we're doing in prayer. If I really believe that the Spirit is at work, when and how is that going to play out in my life? That's what we're looking for from God. So we pray something somewhat like the prayer of Samuel when he says, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I'm ready to receive the direction you have. The glory of the Lord should be shown and revealed visibly through us in our interactions with one another, and we take that out. It should be revealed out in the world that we live in. And so we're praying. As we pray, we pray to commit to God's ways in our relationships with one another, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And so I'm going to bring us into a time of prayer here, and I'm going to ask you to commit to one of those things I talked about this week. Perhaps you've never said yes to Jesus. This is a, a great morning to do it. I'm going to ask you to do that. If you've never really committed to his church, you've said yes to Jesus, but his church, just I'm one foot out, one foot in. I'm going to say this morning, commit to his people, to be his glory revealed. And, and to be, the third thing is I commit to understanding the fullness of Jesus' church. That is, I'm going to pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation so I know how to interact, that I'll pray, Lord, how would you have me be your hope? And when and where, how is your spirit going to work through me? Let's pray together. God, we lift up before you this place and all the churches in town that lift up your word and know your good news and preach it today. We lift them up to you as well as your church, your people gathered together. We lift up those around the world who live and breathe for you. The Holy Spirit is working around this world right now, God. And our question in this place is when and how? How have you called us? When have you called us? Where have you called us? How can we be hope as we walk out of this place today? So, Father, if there are those sitting in this room who have never said yes to Jesus, I encourage you, if you're sitting here, just say yes now. Father, I receive your son Jesus. I ask for forgiveness from all my sins. If you're sitting here today and, and you've thought to yourself, I like the church, but. God, will you heal us from that but? God, will you take those of us who are half in, half out and put us all in? We are with your people, your glory revealed in this world. And God, we pray today for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that as you call us to go from this place that we would be your hope in a visible form in school, in work, at home, at the store. That when people look at us, there is something different, but also give us the words through your spirit to tell them what's different. To be your word revealed, your hope. God, may we commit to you today to the spirit of wisdom and revelation to live under your lordship as your people and to go out to be your hope and your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.